Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few months, since the turn of the year, we've been working our way through the book of Acts and looking at what we can learn from the early church and what there is in there. And I think it's been good just opening it up and and examining some of it. When we last looked at Acts a couple of weeks ago, we left Paul in Lystra. He had just met Timothy and uh, recommended that he should be circumcised. And then Barnabas and Mark had gone off to Cyprus in the meantime and Paul had been travelling with Silas. And so we're going to continue looking at the account from Acts 16 verse 6 onwards. And I've got quite a long passage today because what I want us to look at today is what is often referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. Some people call it the five city tour, and you'll see why that is in a moment. But what I'm going to do is break it down into chunks, and then really do a commentary as we go through. So Acts 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I've got a map, because some of these places are not places that we instantly think of. So, At the moment, Paul's here in Lystra, where he's met Timothy. And if you go on to the next map, okay, what he had been doing was preaching in this region and in this region. Okay? But now, he's decided to head north. So he's travelled up towards Bithynia. But by the time he's got to the border, something has stopped him. And we're not told what it is. It might have been guards on the road, it could have been something practical that has stopped him, but certainly whatever it is, he puts it down to God, because what he says is, the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow us to get there. So instead, they turn to one side. But what I just want you to pick out of this, okay, is that they have been continuing, despite all the opposition, despite all the problems they've encountered, to preach the gospel in village after village, in town after town. And we know that he now had with him Silas and Timothy, 
But actually, there's a hint in there as to another companion that he had with him. Because for the first time in Acts, Luke uses a new word. He says, we. When you read that, he actually said, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. So whether he'd been with them before, or whether he joined them in Lystra or the surrounding areas, isn't clear. But certainly, he was now a travelling companion with them. Now, this at first doesn't seem very important. But actually, this is suddenly a big change for the gospel. Because they got to a point where they thought they knew where they were heading, north to Bithynia, and God says no to them. So the question is, so where do we go now? And Paul then has this vision saying, I'm over here in Macedonia, come over here and talk to us. And that's actually a big step, because up to now, the gospel had proved effective from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, round through the Asian part of Turkey, as we would know it today. But now, moving over into Macedonia, they're going further into the Roman Empire and into what we would today call Europe. And that was quite different culturally. So the question is, will the gospel, which has proved so effective in the mainly rural areas and towns to date, work well when they come into the much bigger commercial cities that were in Europe. Well, as we read on from verse 11, it says, From Troas we set out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day onto Neapolis. I think it's the next one, actually. So, having not got in to Bithynia, they headed west to the coast, towards Troas, and then took two sea journeys to get to what would today be probably part of the northern part of Greece. Now, from Troas, they travelled to Philippi, and it's described as a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And it says they stayed there several days. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was the main city in that region. And in fact, it was the city where Mark Anthony had revenged the assassination of Julius Caesar. And as a result of that, all the inhabitants of the city had been given Roman citizenship, with all the privileges that that brought with them. And that was important to them. They enjoyed that Roman citizenship. And that's clear, because Paul later writes to the church that was going to be founded there, and you'll find that in Philippians 3, verse 20. He, he reinforces, our citizenship is in heaven. He had to remind them there was something far bigger than just being a Roman citizen. But there are other differences as well. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. So Paul couldn't follow his usual practice, where he would go first to the, t the temple or the synagogue and preach to the Jews, and then preach to the Gentiles. He couldn't do that. So what was he to do? 
We read in verse 13 onwards, On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to preach to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here we meet Lydia. She's the first European convert. And she's clearly a woman of some means. It says that she has her own household. She trades in fabric. And in particular, she trades in purple cloth. Now that has a significance in itself. Because purple, in that day and age, was one of the most difficult colours to make a dye for. Because they relied on natural ingredients. Certain colours were easy, because they came out of the clays, or the soils, or the plant extracts that they had available to them. But purple was a very difficult colour, and as a result, purple cloth was excessively expensive. So here we've got... A woman of independent means who trades in the luxury items of the time. And that's why purple is often associated with royalty, just as an aside. But what we see is God had already been active in her life. She's called a worshipper. And actually, she was found near a place that for one reason or another, they expected to find a place of prayer. And it says, God opened her heart. And she obviously quickly believed, because it says, together with her whole household, she was baptised. And then, just a little later, we meet the next convert. Verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realised that their hope of making money was now gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought before them the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell 
fastened their feet in the stocks. So now we've got a contrast. We've got Lydia, well-off woman with her own business. And we've got this slave girl. She's afflicted by demons. But she seems fascinated by Paul and his companions. Because it says she followed them around for several days. And she was shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. They'll tell you the way to be saved. Now, at first, that might sound like a strange thing for someone afflicted by demons to be doing. But actually, if you just cast your mind back and start to think about gospel passages, demons actually seem to show great spiritual insight at times. One of the ones that was cast in to the Gadarean swine, when they saw Jesus, shouted out, and this is Matthew 8, 29, What do you want of us, Son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? If you look in Luke 8, 28, when one demon in an afflicted man shouted, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. Now, whatever their deception Whatever their error, they clearly recognised Christ for who he was. And they saw in him God's authority. Now, I don't know what you would expect when a girl like that is freed. We had a freedom morning last Sunday morning. What would we have expected if as a result of praying for someone that morning, they had been freed of a demonic spirit. Would we have expected the owner, however you might construe that, to come and complain that they had just lost their income? Because that's what then happened. This girl was set free. The owners were upset that they had now lost their ability to make money through her because she could no longer foretell the future. But actually they do something altogether different. They go to the magistrates and make quite a different complaint. They complain, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into uproar. And they're doing it by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept. Now, that account in Luke accurately reflects the situation in a Roman colony. The accusation of causing a riot or introducing an alien religion was a serious one. Legally, a Roman citizen couldn't practice any cult which hadn't received public sanction. It had to have the permission of the state. Although in practice, he could probably get away with it, as long as the cult didn't go against the laws or the normal way of Roman life. And so as a result, they were thrown into prison, not for the loss of income, but because they were causing problems to the Roman way of life. So then we read about the jailer. 
about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I do have to give Paul and Silas marks out of ten. Because we've just read that they'd been severely beaten. And I must admit, if I'd just been severely beaten at midnight, I would probably be trying to get to sleep. But they were singing hymns to God and praying. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open. And everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. So the jailer is the next convert to Christ. Now, I've had to think about this. What do you think the conversation between Paul and Silas and the other prisoners were like? Because suddenly they've been singing and having a word of a time. There's this earthquake and all the prison doors pop open. And somehow they convinced all the prisoners to stay. What on earth could they have said? But the result of God's manifest power was that the jailer came to faith. And by the next morning, if you read on, the magistrates realised that they'd made a serious error. They'd beaten up and they'd imprisoned a Roman citizen without giving him a fair trial. And that was in itself an illegal act. So they let Paul and the others go. What they do do is they ask him to leave the city. And in his own time, he does. Because it says that, first of all, he went and encouraged the church. And then, obviously, when he felt he'd encouraged them enough, he left town. I I just want to reflect, just for a moment, on what a diverse church Paul has just planted here. There's this rich woman who runs her own business... A slave girl that has just been set free. And a jailer. And their households. What a glorious testament that is to the diversity that we see in God's kingdom. That actually the gospel is for rich and for poor. For slave and for free. So Paul and the others move on. We read at the beginning of the next chapter. When they had passed through Amphipolis and... Sorry, I have to pause and get my head around some of these. When they had gone through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As 
As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason was welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one named Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. So now we're in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a seaport. And uh, like most seaports of the time, and in fact probably even today, it had its fair share of problems. It was on the one hand affluent and prosperous, but on the other hand it needed to provide for the needs of sailors who'd been away from sea for far too long. And so Paul goes there and he preaches there for at least three weeks. But this time, the opposition comes from the Jews. The reason for their opposition is that they are jealous that so many are being persuaded by Paul and Silas. But again, they hide their true motives. And what they do is they stir up trouble in the town and then go and make this accusation. These guys are causing trouble all over the world and now they have come here. Actually, long may that trouble last. Long may the church cause trouble all over the world by coming up against anything which is unrighteous and unjust. And Paul and the others are encouraged to leave town. And this time they do so quite quickly. And they move on to Beria. We read in verse 10, As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Beria. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berians were a more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Beria, they went there too, agitating the crowds 
and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. I like that description. The Berians were of a more noble character. I'll let you imagine what that might mean. But what I want you to note in particular is their devotion to the scripture. It says they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What a healthy attitude. Oh, that we should with great eagerness accept what God says to us. But oh, that we should examine the scriptures to test and to weigh it, to see if it's true. Now, there seems to be no opposition from the Berians themselves. But then the news got around, and so those from Thessalonica turned up wanting a fight again. So the safest thing to do was to get Paul out of town. I mean, he's already been severely beaten on this trip, and we know on another occasion it says he was left for dead. So they escorted him to Athens. Athens. The centre of the Greek world. The centre of philosophy and debate of the ancient world. And Paul arrived there, and what he saw was a city filled with statues to the gods. He saw a city full of idolatry. We read in verse 16, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Notice how Paul was upset by the idols. 
he understood, however, despite that, where he needed to start. And he needed to start where the people were at. The Athenian culture was all about philosophy and debate. And so Paul used the idol to an unknown God as the launch pad into that debate. I, I, love, this, I love this reference to all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent nothing, spent all their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. It, it just reminds me of a little saying at work. I work part-time in local government and we spend all our time reporting on what we're doing. And there's a law called Cohen's Law. I don't know whether you've come across it. It's the more time you spend reporting on what you're doing, the less time you have to do anything. But stability sets in when you spend all your time doing nothing but reporting on the nothing that you're doing. And this is where they got to. They spent all their time mulling over the latest ideas and fashion trends. And so Paul launches into the debate. And he shares with them stuff that challenged their thinking. The Greek culture had no concept of life after death. And already, by talking about resurrection, he's challenging that. And then he uses their own idolatry. In verse 29 it says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. He was pointing out to them that they were making God in man's image. And of course we know man is made in the image of God. And his arguments were successful because it says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. After that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Diocinus, a, a member of the Aropagus. Also a woman came Damaris and a number of others. So we see there was a threefold response. Some sneered, some wanted to know more, and some believed. And after a while, Paul left Athens and moved on to Corinth. Oh, it's up there already, you've beaten me to it. Now, Corinth was situated between two harbours. Again, it was very prosperous, but in particular, it was known to be very wicked. So how would the gospel go down in Corinth? There he met a Jew named Aquila, a, nati a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, 
he reasoned in the synagogue and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. Again, we see opposition coming from the Jews. But nonetheless, some of them believed and were baptised. And as you read through that passage that follows, we'll find that God gives Paul a dream to reassure him about his own safety. You'll find that the Jews try and get Paul into court on charges again, but this time the pro-council doesn't want to get involved. And you learn that Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. And then, after quite a brief stopover in Ephesus, they returned to Caesarea and then to Antioch, to their sending church. And so we again see this pattern that actually, having been sent out, they return to their sending church and report So, in summary, we see a pattern that we've become quite familiar with. Proclamation of the gospel brings opposition. But also, we see that the gospel of Christ is effective wherever and whenever it's preached. And we need to believe that for our town. Because if it can be effective in Asia, if it can be affected in the towns of wickedness and philosophy in the European world, it can be effective here in Doncaster. God is able to break into Doncaster in the 21st century just as much as he was able to do it then in ancient Europe. And we see the signs of that happening. We see salvation and we see healing amongst us. In his book, Preaching and Preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells of a time when he preached to students at St. Mary's Church, Oxford. And he recounts, I preached to them as I would have preached anywhere else. Now, in the question time that followed, someone criticised him, saying that what he had preached could equally well have been delivered to a congregation of farm labourers or anyone else. They obviously had a high opinion of Oxford students. But the doctor replied, I regarded undergraduates and indeed graduates of Oxford as being just common human clay and miserable sinners like everyone else. 
And I held the view that their needs were precisely the same as the agricultural labourer or anyone else. I preached as I had done quite deliberately. There is no greater fallacy than to think you need a gospel for special types of people. The gospel for Europe's farmers is the same gospel as that for Athens philosophers or the merchants in Corinth. Isn't that tremendous? The gospel of Christ holds a universal power. But what I want us to really consider this morning is the different reactions that people had to the gospel. And I want us to ask, what is our inner reaction when we think about the gospel? Even though we may be saved, we can still have opened or closed minds, we can have soft or hardened hearts. What's your thinking like this morning? Are you like Lydia? Are you a worshipper with an open heart towards God? Are you like the slave girl was? Are you actually oppressed and needing freedom even though you recognise the truth and spiritual authority? Are you like the jailer? Are you influenced when you see people of integrity and particularly God's power at work? Or are you like the slave girl's owners? More worried about the consequences? Are you like the Jews in Thessalonica? Jealous of what God is doing somewhere else? Are you like the Berians? Eager to accept the truth, but cautious to check it out. Are you of noble character? Are you like the Athenians? Obsessed with idols and inspired by futile debate. When you think of the Corinthians, are you like Crispus, the synagogue leader, who despite opposition in the synagogue, stood his ground and believed? Are you like those in Ephesus, who wanted to know more and pleaded with Paul to return? Because the choice is yours. When you come to the scriptures, do you believe what it says? Or are you cautious? Let's just stand and pray. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.